to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to this week's episode of Hotel Bar Podcast. I am Dr. Charles Peterson, and I'm sitting here with my two post-holiday wrecks of co-hosts. Dr. Lee Johnson, the Dr. Rick Lee. No one say Florida, it'll trigger Rick. How you guys doing? What's going on? I'm out of that hellhole. <laughs> well, it's snowing here, so I don't even know where I am anymore. Sometimes it snows in Memphis. <laughs> well, that sounds weird, but not too weird to order drinks. Lee, what are you drinking and what are your rants and raves? Today, I am going to have a dry vodka martini. So really, you're just having straight vodka. Just Let's just, <laughs> let's just stop with the dry <laughs> fiction. You just want straight vodka, and no one's Wait, judging you. I thought when you say dry, that means it has more vermouth. No, no that's why. That's vermouth. Oh, my God, you guys. I've just been wrong my whole life. Okay. Well, in that case, I want to wet vodka martini (laughs) (laughs) anyway this week i am actually raving about a guy named w caleb mcdaniel so i don't know this guy personally but he invented a generic syllabus maker that I have been using for years now. (laughs) And I'm going to put it in the link to this week's episode notes because everyone needs this. Basically, you enter the starting date of the semester and the ending date of the semester and the days on which your class meets. Oh, that's fantastic. And it automatically generates a list of dates for your class. Oh, wow plug into your syllabus. I have been using this for years. Every semester I posted on Twitter, I'm like, just a reminder, this thing is awesome. Anyway, I did look up this guy. He's the current chair of the history department at Rice University. But man, I know so many people, Caleb or W. Caleb, who use this. And thank you, thank you, thank you. I am raving about you and I rave about you every single semester when I'm writing new syllabi. So We'll put a link to that in the show notes for all of you who are putting together syllabi right now. I am ranting, relatedly, about the naivete of January ambition. (laughs) This happens to me every semester, so it's not just January ambition, it's also late July, early August ambition when I'm putting together my syllabi and I think you know what would be great to do this semester? And then exactly 14 weeks from now, I'm going to be hating the me that thought this really ambitious (laughs) change to my syllabus was a great idea. So yeah, I'm trying to tone it down because we're still doing COVID semesters and I know that I don't need to be adding anything, but man, it's so hard. I actually do love creating syllabi, you guys. I just wish I could execute the syllabi that I create. (laughs) I think you really enjoy going on Twitter and asking people what they would put on the syllabus for the class that you're teaching. I think that's what you like. I am not that girl. Between the automatic (laughs) syllabus generator and your hive mind abuse of Twitter followers. I am not that girl, but I know those people. Rick, what's your drink? What are your rants and raves? I'm going to partially join Lee. I'm going to have a martini the right way, namely with gin. (laughs) I'd call you a snob, but that's redundant. (laughs) 
let me just insert into my drink order a mini rant. And that is, I think that the reason why people got interested in so-called dry martinis was because the only vermouth we had available was martini and Rossi. And that shit sucks. But if you get some good vermouth, you want to taste it in your martini. So I guess martini and Rossi will not be sponsoring our show. Did we just just burn that bridge? Call us, we'll talk. (laughs) Either martini or Rossi, call us, we'll talk. (laughs) What are your rants and raves, man? This week, I am raving about the jazz pianist Red Garland. I've been listening to a lot of Red Garland lately, and also his trio, not to throw them under the bus, but either his solo work or as a trio, he's a remarkable pianist. You know, being in Florida for what seemed like four years, I needed some calming music frequently. And so Red was my Florida accompaniment. That reminds me of the dude, the old cop from Law and Order, where he was like, New Jersey, I spent a year there one weekend. (laughs) It sounds like Florida is going to become the center of your emotional pain. (laughs) I'm out of there and I'm not ever going back. Not if I can help it. Look, Miami, I think, is okay. But other than that, you could take the whole rest of the state. (laughs) My rant this week is about rude airline passengers. Mm. I hear you. So although I drove down to Florida, I flew back. And, you know, with COVID putting pressure on airline staff, then there was bad weather in the Midwest that moved east, and it was a holiday weekend. The airline staff was under tremendous pressure, and people, there's just no reason to be rude without that, but give them a break. I mean, they're out there, and they're working their asses off, so just don't be rude to them. Teamwork makes the dream work. Yeah, you're here. <laughs> Charles, what about you? What are you drinking and ranting and raving about? Oh, you know, in recognition of winter and the first snow in Ohio, I will be having a nice coffee with Kahlua. Just something simple, something to warm the cockles of my cockles. You know, give me that nice little, <laughs> give me that nice little belly burn. So I'm going to go with coffee and Kahlua. I think that used to be called the Mexican coffee, but that sounds dodgy right now. And I'm not going to use that term. Yeah. That sounds very dodgy. <laughs> yeah. Too yeah. late. <laughs> Too late. Oh, you know, I wanted to say Happy New Year to Rami. Had not. Had oh, not Rami. To say Happy New Year to him. So I'm going to do this reverse. I'm going to rave first. This week, I'm raving about the legacy of Bell Hooks. A lot of people write, a lot of people teach, a lot of people talk, and a lot of people think. But rarely are there people who do all of them in such a magnificent way. I can honestly say that Bell Hooks was one of the writers who completely transformed the way that I thought about myself, the way I thought about society, the way I thought about questions of race and gender and class and sexuality. And and I just love her work. I'm recommitting to teaching her work to a new generation of students. And I just have to say that probably the greatest thing I love about her was that she was just uncompromisingly brave in everything she did. Even if she said something that she knew most people would disagree with, specifically like her recent criticisms of Beyonce and that manifestation of feminism, she didn't care. She was committed to the truth. And I want to rave about everything that she's brought to the society. So thank you. Thank you, Bell Hooks. We lost a big one. We lost a big one. Another giant, another tall tree has fallen in the forest. Yeah. 
Now, I want to rant about 12-string guitars. (laughs) And the evil genius who created them, it's almost like some sort of mythological cursed gift. It sounds amazing and it's beautiful and the resonance of the tones are absolutely magical. Who can think of the Eagles without a 12-string guitar or any of their songs? But tuning one of those fuckers. <laughs> so true. So, so true. I swear to God, it's like some punishment in like Tartarus. You know what I'm saying? It's just. <laughs> yeah. I spent 30 minutes tuning a high A string on my 12 stringer. And I swear to God, for 29 of those minutes, I thought, do I have the right string? Because maybe this is a B. <laughs> is this a G? Because I can't get the. T- I mean, so hashtag first world problems. <laughs> I feel that, though. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Well, today, I think the honorable Florida-hating Rick Lee is in the hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Whatever burgeoning audience of listeners we had in Florida. Yeah, we used to be huge in Florida. Now, not so much. <laughs> we, were, we were huge in Tallahassee. <laughs> but, Rick, you're in the hot seat. And what are we talking about today? Well, so let me pull back a little bit of the curtain for our listeners. Charles and Lee and I talk a lot, independent of the podcast. And so th- this came out. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so sometimes did you ever meet a student in the grocery store and they look at you and they're like, wait, you are alive outside of the classroom? Yeah. 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 Like, like sleep under the desk. Right. <laughs> you need fabric softener too. Right. <laughs> so offline, we were talking about this and that and the other thing. And I remarked that I thought that Charles was a tremendous philosophical optimist, but personally he was a pessimist. And this got a discussion going about optimism and pessimism. And so I thought this would be a good topic for us to talk about. I think, well, first of all, maybe I can explain what I meant about the difference between personal pessimism and philosophical pessimism. And I think also there is a political version of this. People can be personally optimistic, but politically pessimistic. But not the reverse. <laughs> well, if you're thinking the same thing. But if you're politically reverse. optimistic these days, that's just called naive. <laughs> Foolishness, I think. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. say tomato, I say tomato. So this week, I want to talk about all the multiple senses of optimism and pessimism. So let me ask the two of you. I'll start with you, Charles. Do you consider yourself to be an optimist or a pessimist? Personally, I actually feel myself to be a pessimist. You know, one of the things I really loved about the philosophy, interpretation, and culture program at Binghamton was that it was wide open and I could take courses across the college. And I took a lot of history courses. And so I really think of myself as particularly historically minded in my writing and my thinking. Not a historicist per se, but certainly historically minded. And because of what I study and because of my topic, because of my focus on Africana philosophy and I teach in Africana studies, though we try to hype it up, in general, it's not the happiest history. (laughs) Right? I mean, there have been amazing moments of noble expansion and achievement, but in general. So I realized that my pessimism is certainly informed by how I think about the movement of of this particular society 
really this civilization, human civilization, over the past 500 years. And from what I've seen, only the slight deviations from the norm. So that's what informs my personal pessimism. What about you, Lee? Optimist or pessimist? You know, this is really hard. I've been thinking about this since, Rick, you told us that we were going to be talking about optimism and pessimism today. And I keep going back and forth because depending on what context in which I'm thinking about it, I might say one or the other. And I think the way that I want to answer this question is that I'm not sure that I think about optimism and pessimism as a character trait. So I think I'm strategically optimistic and pessimistic. So for example, I I was thinking I'm much more optimistic around my students, for Mm. example, than I am around my friends. I'm much more pessimistic around certain kind of friends than I am around other kinds of friends. And then of course it depends on what we're talking about. I, I don't know that I can answer that. Like I am an optimist or I am a pessimist carte blanche. I think it matters. Like the social context that I'm in, the conversational context that I'm in. Yeah, I don't know. What about you, Rick? I would say that I'm an optimist if I could limit that to personal optimism. And I think the reason why I say this is because I've been thinking of a few examples. If someone around me says, oh, my God, I was at the doctor's office and they found something. My initial, not just my fake response to them, but my initial thought is, it's going to be fine. It's nothing. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it until you get more information. It's all fine. And so in that sense, I have an incredibly optimistic personal attitude and interpersonal attitude. But then when I think it comes to other things, you know, for example, climate change, we're just fucked. And I don't know if that's pessimism. I think it's too late. I think we can't reverse this shit. I think politically in the U.S. right now, I think we're fucked. I don't see a way out of it. And so in those non-personal and interpersonal issues, I think I am incredibly pessimistic. But then that leads me to a question. What sense does it like maybe with when it, with climate change? I'm just actually a realist, not a pessimist. Yeah. 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 And I wanted to yeah. ask, too, because I'm the same way when people are in need or they come with a problem or some sort of dilemma. I try to put the best, most hopeful spin on it. If, oh, I have contracted this thing, I'm not going to be like, oh, you're going to die. Right. But I will say, well, you know, let's let's see. And you got testing, whatever. So is that necessarily optimism or is that gauging your answer based on a lack of information and data at that moment? Or is it also a form of care, which may not necessarily be optimism, but it's out of concern for people's emotions, their feelings and the sense of what their emotional lives can do to their health outcomes, which sounds a little insincere. But at the same time, it is a, a bit of sincerity out of concern. If that makes well, sense. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. So my former mother-in-law, the mother of my former spouse, if I would say to her, oh, I'm I'm going to Krakow, she would say, yeah, you're probably going to get robbed. And so <laughs> that, I think, is a pessimist, right? <laughs> Whatever the situation is, something bad is going to happen. And, and when something bad happens, it's only going to get worse. And so that's an attitude I think is pessimistic. That's not necessarily about care or lack thereof. It's just her general attitude is something bad is always going to happen. So as we can think about optimism or or pessimism, certainly we can think about them as characteristics. 
uh, of personality types, or can we think about it as an epistemic question, as a question of knowledge? And is that informed by what you know or don't know? Or if it's a, a question of personality, do you assemble the information or data that you receive based upon a pre-existing inclination? I think this really is the question to ask, because if what it means to be an optimist is that you're always going to be looking for the possibility that things might get better and mm. not the inevitability of them getting worse, then I would say, yeah, I'm an optimist. But I would say, like Rick, that I'm a realist about some things, right? Like there is no possibility here that it's going to get better. So, for example, I would not go out right now into a crowded restaurant without a mask and say, I, I probably won't get COVID. I'm an optimist, right? That was such a well-timed sneeze, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> so I would not go into a crowded restaurant right now and think, I'm an optimist. I won't get COVID because I think the realistic possibility of that happening, although there is a possibility that I might not get COVID, that to go forward in the world, counting on that as inevitable or even likely is just stupid. So I, I would probably assume that I probably will get COVID, which is statistically likely, extremely likely if I go into a crowded restaurant without, um, especially in Tennessee, without a mask. And I feel the same way about, for example, the climate and the current political situation in the United States, that right now, it's not that there isn't, well, at least with the current political situation, it's not that there isn't a possibility that things could get better. And so I imagine I'm probably more optimistic politically than I am in terms of climate, in terms of the actual survival of our species on this planet. But again, I think that Charles is asking the right question, that in some ways, I don't really consider it an attitude. I consider it an epistemological question. You know, I will say, though, that there are people who I think do not look for the possibility that things get better. Yeah. So they assume already that things won't get better. That's how I understand pessimists as a disposition towards the world. I don't think that I'm that. But I'm not sure that I am a cockeyed optimist either. So what you're saying for the character of Eeyore, it's not that Eeyore is a downer. It's just that Eeyore has seen some shit. Like that's a backstory <laughs> to Winnie the Pooh. I think Eeyore is a downer. So for listeners, we're referring to the character in Winnie the Pooh. The thing that makes Eeyore a downer is that Eeyore is looking for something to be down about, yeah. even when there's nothing there, right? He's like, I'm a perfectly fine person. You know, he, he doesn't say this, but he is a perfectly fine donkey. He has plenty of friends. People are looking out for him. Nothing particularly is going wrong. And he's going to complain about his tail. He's like, uh, it's not much of a tail. That seems to me, a, you know, a dispositional attitude of pessimism. Well, so this is an interesting point because it's related to this epistemological issue. If it is epistemic, then it looks to me more like what some logicians would call a propositional attitude, right? So I could have the proposition, it is raining out, and that's either true or false. And then there are what they call propositional attitudes like, I believe that it's raining, or I think that it's raining, or I wonder if it's raining. And those are related to, but have a kind of independence from the content of the proposition itself. In more continentally trained philosophical approaches, we would call this something like a hermeneutic attitude or something like that. It's a way in which I 
relate to the knowledge I have, but that way of relating to the knowledge I have also then frames the kind of knowledge that becomes available to me on the basis of those attitudes. And so, you know, I'm someone who doesn't go out looking for more signs that were fucked. I'm someone who, you know, tries it's to- like I'm all, I'm all stocked up on this. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You don't have to convince me. Right. You got me. <laughs> the pantry is full. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there was an issue when I was with my family over this Florida nightmare, and one of my siblings said something, and I thought to myself, ah, you know what? I am fresh out of fucks to give. Um, <laughs> I've given them all. I have no more. So it seems like we're saying that optimism and pessimism are ways of framing the knowledge relation we have with the world around us, in which case, then, by the way, someone could be an optimist and still say it's too late for climate. Yeah, I, here's my one reservation about framing it entirely in epistemological terms. We get very close to describing optimists in the same way that we would describe someone who's just delusional and or ignorant. So people who are just not reckoning with the truth of their world in a way that is propositionally sound. Right. But so for example, let, let me give you an example. Okay. So, so I do not believe in an afterlife. Now I don't know if there is an afterlife or not, but I might describe people who believe in an afterlife as optimists. I could also describe them as delusional as sort of creating falsities to ground their optimism and to feed their optimism for which they have no evidence and in fact might have sufficient contrary evidence. But on the other hand, it seems to me to go back to your example of you're not going to a restaurant in Tennessee and I'll add Florida to that without a mask on, that that's neither being a pessimist but it, there's a way in which if you do go to the restaurant with a mask on, having taken all the precautions, for example, sitting outside and so on and so forth, there seems to me something optimistic about that attitude. Like, I am not going to allow my behavior to be determined by the fact that I think something bad is just around every corner. But it seems in that specific example, it seems that because one has faith in science and you're like, I'm vaccinated, first shot, second shot, I've got my booster, I know what the probability is, I know what the medical studies have shown me, that in certain circumstances, with this array of vaccinations, the likelihood of me getting seriously sick from COVID is greatly diminished. So my optimism isn't the optimism of, oh, the world's an incredibly sunny place and nothing but good things happen. And so I won't catch COVID. That's an optimism based upon, no, the science tells me that the likelihood of something negative happening is greatly reduced. So that's what that optimism is really based on, it seems to me. So I think there's a difference between, to paraphrase South Pacific, a cockeyed optimist who is going around saying everything's great, everything's fine, there's nothing wrong. And someone this is the who, best of all possible worlds. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and it's the best of all possible worlds, and it's getting better. <laughs> There's a difference between that and someone who tries to see in every situation something that is not just we're doomed. 
So you brought up Eeyore, the character I have, and this is going way back. And so I think none of our listeners will know who the hell I'm talking about. But when I was a kid, there was a cartoon called Gulliver's Travels, and Mm -hmm. it was only Gulliver and the Lilliputians. Right. Right. And one of those Lilliputians, his name was Glum. And (laughs) his constant refrain was, we'll never make it. We're doomed. And that's a pessimist who might not even be a realist. And so I'm wondering if you could be a pessimist and a realist, and if you could be an optimist and a realist. And those would be the true pessimists. The other ones are psychologically too far to legitimately call optimists or pessimists. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philo spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. So, Rick, we've been talking about optimism and pessimism as certainly epistemic or as a, a possible orientation of personality or way of framing the world or even when thinking about oneself in relationship to the world, I think we've been getting there. But talk to me a little bit more about philosophical optimism or philosophical pessimism, if that's a distinction that could be made. Well, so the reason I started thinking about this goes all the way back to what episode was it where we got into this discussion about critical thinking? And Charles, you and Lee were both, we need more critical thinking. That was last season. It was about conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. That was early last season. Yeah. Right. So we need more critical thinking. Critical thinking is going to save us all. And and I just, <laughs> I just don't buy it. And so then I start thinking, do I think that only about critical thinking or like, what is my attitude about the possibility of philosophy improving either individual lives or professional lives? And I think that there you could start thinking about optimism and pessimism, namely that to the extent that you think philosophy could improve individual or collective lives, you're a philosophical optimist. To the extent that you think it can't, I think you're a philosophical pessimist. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. I, I, I wonder if it has to involve improving lives, though, because I think I would call myself a philosophical optimist for different reasons, and I would describe it this way. I think that it's always better to know than to not know, for things to be unveiled, for things to be discovered, for things to come to light, rather than for them to remain hidden and unknown and in the dark. And I do genuinely believe that as long as human beings are around, which might not be that much longer, but as long as we're around, that if something can be known, it will be known. That the second we ask a question, 
if it can be answered, we're going to find the answer to it. Now, sometimes those answers are horrible. Like, how do we make an atomic bomb? Or how do we wipe out entire populations of people, right? Sometimes those answers are horrible. But I think the impulse for us to ask questions and to find answers to them is what philosophy is and that it is a project of creating meaning in a world that does not just serve that up on a platter for us. And so in that sense, I am, I think, a philosophical optimist, but it doesn't really hang, I think, for me on necessarily making lives better or worse. If you were to ask me, should any piece of knowledge be forbidden? I think that my inclination would be to say no. That if it can be known, it should be known, even if it's terrible. And even if we're going to do terrible things with it. Because I think the opposite answer would be a far greater loss. No, that's a very compelling point. And I like that. I think about myself, because when you said that, oh, Charles, you're a philosophical optimist and you are a personal pessimist. I thought, okay, what exactly does it mean by philosophical optimist and does that apply to me? And I would say in two ways. A, in terms of the particular field of philosophy in which I work, Africana philosophy, African-American philosophy, for the most part, because it is a philosophy of change and challenge and transformation, it has to be invested in the ability to have an effect upon the world, whether it's Du Bois or it's Delaney or Bell Hooks or Ida B. Wells or any of the people that we read about and we study. The world has to change because the alternative, certainly for African-descended peoples, is literally unlivable. So hope, optimism, possibility are inherently built into most of the systems. And we could talk about this recent school of thought, Afro-pessimism, a little bit, which seems to strike out in a very different fashion. The second part that's tied to the first, why I agree I am a philosophical optimist, is that I think change is possible. I think change is possible. I think change is necessary. I think change can be accomplished. And I say that despite my personal pessimism based upon the history of African peoples in the West, in the context of that large history, there have been moments where change was activated, where you did have movements or actors, institutions that created and pushed back against the default relationship between African descended peoples and North Atlantic, Western, colonial plantation, however you want to put it, civilization. So I would say in that sense, you're right. Philosophically, I almost have to be optimistic. And certainly if I'm teaching these texts, like Lee, I'm much more of an optimist when I'm engaging with my students. So I just want to respond to Lee. When I said making individual or collective lives better, I meant in a very minimal sense. So that in the sense that you think making meaning is a value, then to the extent that philosophy makes that possible, it betters someone's life, just in that really minimal sense. But Charles, you raise, I think, here a really interesting point that since we had this conversation, I've been wondering whether, at least politically, if being a pessimist actually isn't a sign of privilege. Because, Charles, what you were saying is that you and a number of authors in your field have to believe that change is possible. And yet, if I'm a philosophical pessimist and I say, well, actually, change isn't possible, that insistence on the impossibility of change can only come from a perspective in which the status quo is just fine. Whenever the status quo isn't just fine, then the demand for change comes, but then that requires the insistence that change is possible. 
And, and so I think pessimism is often a result of privilege. I would agree with that to a certain degree, but I think also the problem with coming out of the tradition in which I study and I find myself where I believe myself grounded in is that philosophical pessimism is de-empowering. Mm, yeah. right? One reduces or one surrenders the possibility of agency. One gives up the idea that one has some type of power. And I always think about Frederick Douglass, right? You know, power concedes nothing without demand. His final words to a young activist, what should I do, Mr. Douglass? Agitate, agitate, agitate. So this idea that I'm just going to surrender any sort of tools in the toolbox because it is so very bleak or the powers in which we struggle against seem so ultimately overwhelming, it, it's beyond pessimism. It's a total self-negation. Yeah, and I started thinking about that as we were discussing this in our text exchange in relation to what I would argue is one of the central aspects of Cornell West philosophy, probably from beginning until yesterday, namely, just as you were saying, Charles, that philosophical pessimism is antithetical to the movement of struggle. It's antithetical to the reconstitution of selves. It's antithetical to political solidarity. And so it's more destructive than a philosophical optimism, one that I would say in your hands, Charles, and in Cornell West's hands is not naive. <laughs> Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So I want to try to maybe get to what's at the affective root of the disposition that we call optimism and the disposition that we call pessimism. Because I want to eventually come back to this claim that Rick was making that it's a privilege to be a pessimist. Just in simplest terms, we'd have to say that the affective heart of the optimist is hope and the affective heart of the pessimist is despair. Mm. And I'm not sure that... Either of those affects are appropriate as universal approaches to the world at all times and all situations, which is maybe why I resist saying I am an optimist or I am a pessimist. There are times when I find it wise and prudent to be hopeful or despairing, and there are times when I find it wise to be hopeful but prudent to be despairing or wise to be despairing and prudent to be hopeful. And so I think that we really have to talk about how we, I don't know, a apply, enact, I don't know, these affects of hope and despair. And I suppose now, just to get back to what I was saying before, I don't see how pessimism 
the feeling of despair as a existential disposition towards the world is a privilege. It seems to me that that kind of despairing is only a consequence of a lack of privilege. I can see how strategic despair is a privilege, but not actual despair. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I'm, I'm hesitant about the question of pessimism as a certain privilege. And once again, trying to think historically, I can understand where there are populations or their experiences which have been so demeaning and so disruptive and so diminishing that people just surrender. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, if you read the great Richard Wright novel, Native Son, and you think about his description of, of, of Bigger Thomas's life. You know, mm-hmm. Bigger Thomas has a good argument to be a pessimist about his existence as a young black man on the south side of Chicago in the 1930s. Sure, you know, that which does not kill us only makes us stronger. Well, sometimes it actually just beats the hope out of you Yeah. Mm-hmm. without the strength. So, yeah, I would push back against the absolute claim that pessimism is an example of a certain type of privilege. It may just be exhaustion. Yeah. And so, Lee, I agree with you. And so now I'm wondering if then the distinction between different kinds of optimism and pessimism would allow me to keep my claim that a certain kind of pessimism is a privilege. And and yeah. I, I think that a certain kind of political pessimism is a privilege. Mm-hmm. What I think is not a privilege is when the political reality is bombarding you constantly and, as Charles says, beating you down to the point where that becomes existential. I think that's not a privilege. I mean, I think we're not talking enough about the existential wages of oppression, that these structures are made to be internalized, and when internalized, what is produced is people in despair. And I think that's not a bug, that's a feature. Yeah, and I don't think that any of us would really want to say that despair is pessimistic. Right. No, no. I I think despair is a surrendering, at least with pessimism, one could argue there's still a level, at least how we've discussed it, there's still a level of critical engagement. There's a level of analysis. There is an examination of, of facts and phenomenon and data, so forth and so on. I see despair as a complete and total surrendering of any sort of critical engagement. It's a pure emotional state that foregoes any way of engaging or turning or thinking through. It's an experience and nothing more. Yeah, and I might even want to go so far as to say that maybe the defining characteristic of despair is that one is incapable of seeing a future. Mm. And so in that sense, it's not even pessimistic, right? Because, I mean, both optimism and pessimism are projecting some kind of anticipation of what has not yet happened. And it seems like real despair is the inability to see any future, really. Yeah. But I wonder then, in that sense, whether what I've been calling the non-personal or interpersonal senses of optimism and pessimism actually have an affective heart in the same way. I wonder if it's appropriate. Let me put it this way. I wonder if it's appropriate to say that I'm in despair when I say that when it comes to climate, I'm afraid it's too late. I don't feel like I'm in despair when I say that. I feel resigned to it, but I don't know what it is that I hear in the word despair 
that is different from what I feel my attitude is toward the inevitability of the destruction of our planet. Maybe this is a little too flippant of a analogy, but if my favorite football team is playing in a game and the clock runs down and we have less points than the other team, we've lost. Right. Any optimism that maybe this will be the game where we play a fifth quarter. Right. Just, you know, like that, that's, that's just impossible. I may feel despair, but I'm not pessimistic. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, it just is the case. Okay, so Lee, you raise a really interesting example. And it comes down to my being a lifelong Cubs fan. <laughs> oh, God, please, please, you're an expert on despair, please. Well, but, but I would argue- More so than despair. I would argue neither. I remember before we became the world champion Chicago Cubs, we were in the playoffs and there was that disastrous game where the fan reached into the stands and then a ball right, went yeah, right, right through right. someone's legs and so on. Yeah. yeah. And I was still married at the time and my wife turned to me. She doesn't watch baseball or even know what's going on. But when they lost, she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I immediately, without even thinking or anything, said, that's right. We'll get them next year. Yeah, And, right, and yeah. that's the attitude of a Cubs fan. Well, many Cubs fans is, yeah, that, we played all right. We'll get them next year. It'll be fine. And that's a, a moment of optimism. I think yeah, to say, wait, what happened to the 15th inning? Like, where, yeah. um, th that's just naivete or wishful thinking. Well, it, it seems to me, you know, and as someone from the Chicago area, I was always a Sox fan. Hey, 2005. <laughs> it seems to me that what happens is your pessimism gets exhausted once there's no reason to have any emotional inclination. Like, mm. like the future is over. The end right. of the season has come. Right. But now I can refill back with an optimism when I say, oh, well, there's next year because there's new possibility now. So there may be thinking about a cycle of swinging between these, I, I guess, these epistemic extremes because it is a known thing that we've come to the end of a 162-game season and we're not going to continue. That's not going to change. But there's another 162 games that are coming up next year, and now we have the possibility of something new. There's a possibility of new inputs, new information, new data. All of these things allow for a, a renewal. Not the possibility, Charles, the likelihood. The likelihood. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's foolhardy likelihood. <laughs> that's foolhardy. <laughs> well, I think all three of us here are sports fans. And so we're really familiar with these kinds of affects. But I worry about the ways these get translated by you know, life coaches, right? Mm. Influencers. You have these kind of six steps to positive thinking and a kind oh of God. really watered down, facile optimism being served up as a way of, I don't know, like managing life. Yeah. My resistance to calling myself a pessimist, and the same way, if anyone called me a pessimist, I would say, no, I'm not. My resistance to that has to do with, I think, probably substantial commitments that I have that I could articulate pretty well. I think my resistance to being called an optimist is this whole other thing, this phenomenon of American mm. Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. Like, what even is it? It's like a sort of 50s Betty Do-Gooder that I just find, again, naive and irresponsible and really stupid. In the context in which you have discussed it, Lee, that sounds more of a position of privilege. Definitely, yes. Right? 
that, yeah. that you've lived a life where it's been an unbroken stream of green lights. Yeah. Yeah. You've lived a life where life itself hasn't pushed back on how you think about it. You can choose if you want to think happy about it or think pessimistically about it. Yeah. I mean, for the listener, along with Rick's idea that I'm philosophically optimistic, but personally pessimistic, you self-described as being philosophically pessimistic, but having the optimism of a middle-class white guy. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Which is some top-shelf optimism. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's that's 12-year-old optimism. Now, 18-year-old optimism is being the scion. You know, it's a Kennedy. That's that's... <laughs> That's that's eighteen year old optimism right there. It's somebody right. with a dick rocket. Yeah, somebody that's... with a dick rocket. That's mwah, that's finely aged. Chef's kiss optimism. It's a life of chef's table. Every meal is a chef's yeah. table for you. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, and it's a twelve course tasting menu. That's right. There's always another course around the bend, Charles. Always another course. And it's mwah. Yeah. Magnificent. Delicious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like the game is over and I actually purchased the Cubs. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then rewrite the rules of baseball. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I purchased the Cubs and became commissioner of baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, it's a new year and it's kind of coming as a shock to all of us that we're pushing up on the end of our third season here at Hotel Bar Sessions. As you know, HBS has so far remained commercial free and we've managed to keep afloat without any paid sponsorship despite our constant appeals to Fireball and Tito's to call us. Nevertheless, Podcasting is not a cost-free enterprise, and so we'd like to gently solicit you, our listeners, to consider supporting us. We've set up a Patreon page where, for less than the price of a cup of coffee a day, you can help Charles, Rick, and I ease the expense of keeping our semi-intoxicated philosophical conversations going. So please visit patreon.com backslash hotelbarsessions where you will find five different support levels, from shots at only $4 a month or cocktails at only $8 a month to more generous levels of commitment like our designated driver level at $12 a month or the dude level at $20 a month. And for our listeners who are swimming in patronage cash, we're also offering a Medici level at $50 a month. And yes, in case you were wondering, there are increasing benefits of access and swag associated with each Patreon level. Though, to be honest, we're all socialists here at HBS, so if you really want something that we're offering to the rich, just email us at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or comment on one of our episodes on our YouTube channel or our webpage at www.hotelbarpodcast.com, and we'll def hook you up. To our super wealthy listeners, though, hey, Zuck, hey, Bezos, hey, Elon, y'all can just ignore the previous caveat and go directly to patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions and be sure to subscribe to hotel bar sessions at the highest level. All of you, though, we really appreciate you listening and we'd really appreciate your support. Now, back to the episode. All 
All right, because we are all about transparency and we like to walk the walk of the talk that we talk, I'm going to ask you guys a couple of questions. Going forward, because we're at the beginning of a new year, what's one thing that both of you are pessimistic about and one thing that both of you are deeply optimistic about? Lee, you want to start? Yeah, I'll go first. This is going to come as a shock to both of you, so I'm going to ask that you return your seat backs and tray tables to their full and upright <laughs> position. But I am the most optimistic about technology. <laughs> but seriously, like I just think amazing things are happening in emergent technologies. And every year I get more optimistic. And that's not to ignore that there are also lots of really terrible things. But I still am really excited and really optimistic about emergent technologies. I would say the obvious thing to be the most pessimistic about is climate disaster. But if I could pick the slightly less obvious thing, I'm really pessimistic about the future of higher education, Hmm. like deeply, deeply, deeply pessimistic. And if we make it through COVID, which I'm not even sure a lot of colleges and universities will, if we make it through COVID and we don't immediately start making major structural changes to higher education in this country, I think we are really in for a disaster. All right, Rick, what about you? You know, with Lee, I am really optimistic about one aspect of technological development in particular. This comes with a little bit of a story. So I have a car that is 20 years old. Therefore, this car does not have any kind of it has cruise control, but like the old fashioned cruise control. And that's it. And driving down to Florida, I drove my parents much newer car and I saw immediately how these emergent technologies in automobiles are making all of us much, much safer. And very simple things like they have a thing that beeps if you go out of your lane without using your turn signal. They have adaptive cruise control. So if the car in front of you slows down, you slow down. Like these things are really amazing. And I am incredibly optimistic about most of the use of these technologies in automobiles. I'm most pessimistic Well, like Lee, there are a number of things. I'm most pessimistic about climate change, but let's just say that's the air we breathe. That's the the pessimistic air we breathe. (laughs) And part of that stinky, pessimistic climate change air is also COVID and Omicron. So given that that's just atmospheric, I'm really pessimistic about the future of philosophy in higher education. The country of Ireland has just founded five new universities And the leaders of these universities are proud to say that they're not teaching humanities at all. And one of the new presidents said, we're not teaching things like philosophy. And so I'm really pessimistic about the future of humanities in general, but philosophy in particular as part of whatever higher education looks like going forward. You know what? Without humanities courses... I don't know what sort of small talk their rising petty bourgeoisie is going to be able to make at cocktail parties. I mean, (laughs) those will all be online, Charles. Well, they'll still have to read Stephen Pinker books. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I should fess up that what I'm very pessimistic about, and I'm just going to get the catch all, right? Anyone can take climate change, but I'm just going to say what I'm deeply pessimistic about is the ability of human beings to make the necessary emotional changes and psychological changes in order to avoid the shitstorm that the two of you have just sketched out. I mean, 
I don't think people are going to be able to move away from the primal fear that drives us towards certain types of self-destruction. I don't think we're going to move away from greed. I don't think we're going to move away from xenophobia. I'm, I don't think we're going to be able to move away. enough of us. Many of us can and have, but not enough of us are going to be able to move away from selfishness in order to think back and reconnect to something called a common good. So I'm deeply pessimistic about human nature, to be really very honest. Mm. What I am optimistic about is the possibility that with the breakdown of U.S. civil society as we see it, that there may possibly be an opportunity to take stock of the damaged nature of this pessimistic system at its core and begin to reshape it in ways that we haven't seen since FDR's New Deal policies and programs, which were deeply flawed. But if nothing else, it was an opportunity for this society to rethink itself and begin to reorganize itself in a much more socially just, not perfectly so, but much more so socially just ways than it was previous to that moment. So this cracked egg maybe could be the beginnings of a nicely done omelet. Nice. Whew. All right, listeners. <laughs> I think I see Rami. Oh, oh, he was weeping quietly in a corner. As he was listening to our conversation. Oh, Rami. I'm sorry, Rami. You don't sign on for this shit. I'm so sorry. So he's pulling Rami, us out. Rami, I'm very optimistic about your tip. Yeah, very. You deserve it, my friend. So it's last call, guys. Any final thoughts before Rami escorts us out and then sort of just weeps silently in the corner? Well, one thing I, I want to say is just in hearing you and Lee talk about what you're pessimistic about, I think one thing I want to point out is that I think there's a difference between pessimism and cynicism. I think there's an evil in cynicism that doesn't belong to pessimism. Secondly, like I normally do when I'm in the hot seat, I'm going to take this last opportunity to say that one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode is because the greatest philosopher, Adorno, is often rejected <laughs> as a pessimist. And I think that he's often a realist, and I think he's very frequently an optimist. And I didn't want us to end without me dropping that. Consider it dropped. <laughs> I want to say that despite both of your talking about your own pessimism, I like the distinction that Rick made earlier between personal and interpersonal pessimism. That interpersonally, I want to say to the listeners that these two guys are the best if you need some encouraging words. They're like very good friends to have. So interpersonally, they're quite optimistic. No, thank you. That extends to you as well. I agree. I was going to say, it's not as if when Charles told us that he tested positive for COVID, Lee and I are like, well, you're fucked. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, we did to each other, but not to Charles. <laughs> yeah. Th there was no dumbass. Put a mask on. There was none of that. So thank see, you. See a sucker. So, no. See a sucker. <laughs> I guess we're lining up your replacement. There, there was none of that. <laughs> Chuck McKinney, call us. It was none of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been an illuminating conversation, very thoughtful, very honest, and, and I've certainly enjoyed and, and benefited from it. So, listeners, try and walk on the sunny side of the street and keep your hopes up. Things actually may get better. Just purse your lips and whistle. That's the thing. And always look on the bright side of life. Come on. Always look on the right side of life For life is quite absurd And death's the final word 
you must always face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your scene, give the audience a grin. Enjoy it, it's your last chance at it. So always look on the bright side.